So let us start with the scripture then. Um, I, I did. I put, posted this word most of the morning. If anyone was here last week, they will remember. And it's pronounced censoriousness. And when you say it with a Scottish accent, it even takes on a life of its own. Um, but I'd ask you to keep this word in mind, as Alistair Begg pointed out last week, censoriousness, uh, which is, as you can see, kind of in the small definition there, in, you are inclined to look for and point out faults and defects. And to say, we have a censoriousness problem, certainly. And this week, we are still in Luke chapter 6. It's really the continuation of the point that Alistair Begg was teaching about last uh last Sunday when we listened to him in, in Jesus' words. This is just a, a like another emphasis that Jesus puts it on on this scripture we look at today. So this is pretty small print, but this is Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. We'll read it. Um, I'll read it to you this morning. It says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give... Uh, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. Um, so, the thing I've enjoyed, well, I've enjoyed it about Romans, I enjoyed it about um, the Gospel of Luke, is that when you sit through and kind of going through slowly, some of these themes just start to really manifest themselves to you. Earlier in the book, I told you, like, one of the themes that just comes out so strong early in the Gospel of Luke is the authority of Christ, right? And we asked and challenged each other, like, hey, what authority do I really give to him? Um, what authority does he really have? And then what authority am I recognizing? So that was a big one. Um, and now at this, at this part of of Luke, what we see is really coming back to that scripture, um, that G or that those words of Jesus is say, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it is the sick, and I feel like Jesus is here just really emphasizing that theme of his ministry of his gospel. It's like you cannot be saved if you don't need saving, right? There is no salvation for those who do not have a need for salvation. Is what he attest to and I think this is a continuation of that if you put yourself in the seat of judgment guess guess where there's no mercy and it gets a little scary when you start to consider it but um, just that that thought of am I willing to be humbled enough to know that I'm in desperate need of a Messiah and I have him because I recognize my need or your need. I have a tennis player. Tennis is on my mind quite a bit right now because we are kind of in the thick of the season. Postseason district starts on Friday and into next week. Um, so there's one, uh, he's actually one of my uh, favorites on the team. I'm probably closest to him. 
but out of the top six, uh, your top six ranked guys are your varsity guys. Um, he is the one that is the most volatile with his game, right? A lot of guys are like, ah, the top of their game today on any given day will probably be here. At the bottom, if they play really poorly, be here. His range is like this, much wider than any of those other guys. Um, and the difference maker is almost like how close he is in talent to the guy or experience the guy he's on the other side of the net from him. If there is a guy who has similar experience to him, all of a sudden he is going to be at a severe disadvantage. Um, why? Because he can't hit as well as the guy across the net? No, he can, and he might even have an edge. But the moment that other guy starts putting a little more pace or speed on the ball, a little more direction that causes you to move your feet a little bit more, which makes it so you're not hitting quite as balanced as a shot, and then you'll hit it in the net or you'll hit it long. These little things in tennis that you learn after a couple of years. Um, if that's his case at all, all of a sudden, his mind just clicks. And you can see on his face, he'll start he'll, on, his, on the court, his head will probably shake like 2,000 times back and forth. And I, I always try to go out there and calm him down. I haven't had a lot of success so far, so maybe I'm not a great coach. But... Um, the, the, the part that I'm working on right now is not like, oh, I need him to be less heady, as I call it. Whether the player is like, are you going to get heady on the court or not? Or do you just keep your head out of it and let your body do what we practice, right? What you've trained it to do through thousands of repetitions. So he gets pretty heady. Um, the problem on I knew it was like it was much bigger deal than I probably could help him with short term was when I asked him, I was like, do you see that when you start getting heady, that your game starts falling apart? Like then even the easy shots become difficult? And he said, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> this is going to be tough. Um, so uh, it is true that, and I've tried to put it in like data form for him to see like a chart of like, hey, when you have one bad shot, it leads to a lot of others. Uh, but I did get him last week. Um, I asked him again. It was the second time I asked him. The other time was like a week into the season. I asked him again. So do you admit now? Because <laughs> he'd been through a couple tough matches. Do you admit now that you know when you get upset, you get angry, that your game starts to digress, to devolve? And he kind of gave me a look like, yeah, I know. But then he said, I think my serve gets better. <laughs> I'm like, well... That maybe is a win here in this context right now. But he, um, it's like, it's really hard to help a player who, like, there's nothing wrong with me. So, like, why would he listen to me if there's nothing wrong? And this is the case for all of us. Like, why would you ever go get a teacher in something you're like, I'm the master, I'm the best there is. Why do I need a teacher? But in tennis, there's clearly a number one player in the world through a point system. And does the number one player in the world have a coach? <laughs> yes. Because their game is not perfect. It's far from it. In fact, they say the number one player in the world loses 45% of his tennis points. That's pretty close to half. Just a slight edge. And it's like, that's, that's crazy. So that recognition, the humility of saying, I'm in need. And I'm good with that because my recognition of my need unlocks life everlasting. is incredible. Um, and so a question goes to you. <laughs> well, before I ask you that question, um, if you don't see the log in your own eye while trying to remove the speck in your brother's eye, 
you might be a hypocrite. Um, I have a couple more for you, actually. Why is the fungus such a hypocrite? Because it doesn't have mushroom to talk. Uh, my dog is a vegan. I don't have a dog, but if I did, he's a vegan, but he's kind of a hypocrite about it. Because he's always walking around in that fur coat. <laughs> this one might get a groan. Um, composers are such hypocrites. They compose all through their lifetime, and then as soon as they die, they start decomposing. <laughs> yeah, so there's your groan. <laughs> um, so if you had a disease, would you want to know? Now, I do know some of you are, um, I've heard seniors say before, it's like, you know, I'm to the point in my life where I don't want to know. It's like, because I don't want treatment. It's like the treatment is a pain enough of its own. Uh, but let's just put it in a spiritual context then. If you are sick, do you want to know? It's going to be painful news. It's never great news to find out you're sick. Do you want to know? They're like, well, I follow Christ. So like, okay, is Christ revealing things in your heart that he's like, you know, that thing you're holding on to, that anger, that impatience, that greed, that envy, you know, I need to take that from you. Do you want to know what he's asking from you right now? Do you want to know honestly? Or you're like, no, I've come to church just to be on the back about what I'm already doing well, and then I can leave, feel uplifted, as opposed to, I don't want to leave and be beat down. You know, you hear people talk about that, use that language and they're leaving church. Man, I got beat up this week. Oh, I was really uplifted this week. And it's, and it's interesting language. But I think it's really important for everyone that is a part of Fillmore Christian to say, if I'm sick, I want to know it. Because I believe there's a doctor. I believe there's a healer. I want to know if I have a disease within me. Because if I don't, then what do we know about diseases? That they can spread. They can, if they can exist in darkness and hide, they can, they can go all sorts of places as opposed to being isolated and treated, right? And so if you are sick, do you want to know? And what I see here in Scripture is not Jesus saying like, all right, stop judging and you'll be saved. That's completely against the theology that we've been studying together. Do we save ourselves by judging less? No. Christ saves us. Christ alone. By, by his wounds, we are healed. Not wounds or obedience or good works of our own. Like your best attempts at not judging others are but filthy rags in comparison to perfect righteousness. And so this isn't the point of like, oh no, I've got to heal myself. The healing can only be done by Christ. It's a supernatural work that he's the only doctor for. However, the doctor gives us a thermometer, I think, a tool by the Sermon on the Mount to help us see the dire nature and the depravity of our sinful selves, but then also to give us an indication of do we believe that he is the doctor or not? And so here we have these words of Jesus, I believe, as a thermometer. Um, and a couple stories here I want to read to you that this doctor gives us I think to act as our tool, our thermometer. Um, in Matthew 18, it said, Peter came to Jesus asking, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Seven's a big number. Uh, no, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with the servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, everything he owned, to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master, begged him, Please, be patient with me, I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Just a little more time. Be patient with me and I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, put in prison, till the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king, told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Kind of sounds like he's preoccupied with torture to pay the debt, right? That's, Jesus says, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. There's a lot of language in the church right now that, hey, God is a God of love, which is so true, but he is a God of justice. And when we see Jesus say, the angry man sent the, the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid the debt. Like, oh, that, that can't be the God of love we know. It's like, that word, those words are pretty clear. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So consider that. Um, last week, Alistair Begg started with the story of Nathan, the prophet, visiting David after David had committed the atrocity of stealing another man's wife, getting her pregnant, and murdering her husband. It is something that if we saw in the movie, we would pray so eagerly for that man to be brought to justice, um, for him to get what he deserves for being so selfish. And that's exactly what David said, and then had Nathan say, yeah, let's, let's get this guy, only to have the fingers pointed right back to David. And I, we talked about in Sunday school with Alistair Begg, of like, okay, this world is full of judgment. And this is so applicable to the world we live in and social media has helped it but it's just i don't think it's changed humanity i think we've always been prone to this um, but social media and these types of connection uh, allow it to come full force now like hey judgment is thrown around so easily and cheaply that you know um, you've thought twice about posting a lot of what you've posted or even not even on social media uh, let me be careful about my wording in this text message, right? Uh, or about what I put out there for the world to see. Because judgment is rampant. And grace is hard to find. Grace is rare. And so we feel this. And I, I still, I'm not a man of predictions, but I really think um, that the you know, cancel culture will be kind of on trial here at the next election. I think there will be a two sides of it. And I... I think it'll become clear, and we'll see jockeying around that. I think it'll be really interesting to watch. Let it entertain you, I would say, um, because it will certainly bother you big time if you don't let it entertain you. Um, 
So we see a lot of this and pointing of fingers, um, even in that Jeff uh, Foxworthy meme, you might be a hypocrite, you might be a redneck. Um, and I remember so clearly being taught as an elementary school, like when you point a finger, what would they say? There's three, at least three, unless you go like this. <laughs> when you point a finger, you got at least three pointing right back at you. And so that, I think I said this and joked about this last time. So I've stopped pointing fingers and said I go like that to people. <laughs> and now I look real crazy. Um, yeah, when you point a finger, there's three pointing right back at you. Um, and when we're talking about, oh, who's in, who's in danger of judging others and therefore being judged by the same measure we hold to others? It's, it's you all, right? It's like, no. Like I, as a leader in this church, hope to be able to always at least be aware that I need to lead um, by my example. And so I can tell you, you have a elder who is in such danger and has committed um, all of these things that Jesus is warning about. And if you could see transcripts of Sarah conversations, it would make you really disappointed in me. Because you'd be like, well, you talked like that, but then other times you came and why did you talk to your wife like that? Why did you say that thing? Like, that was foolish. That was stupid. And Sarah wouldn't have any problems saying, yeah, he's done that. Um, and you all have too. <laughs> and this is our reality. Of like, we know we are in dire straits. We know there's something in ourselves, like Paul said, that I want to do good. I want to obey this command, but I can't. I don't know what it is. There's a power working within me. And yet, it leads me to say, what? I'm sick. Like, I am in need of a Savior. And yes, like, now I know that it's changed, like, Sarah and I's conversation. I point to my wife, just like your spouse. Who knows you more deeply and intimately than your spouse, right? It says in the garden, when marriage and intimacy like that was created, they were naked in front of one another. And I think we first go physical in our mind, but it's like, no, it, it's really our whole selves are on display to uh, our spouse. So your spouse could be the one that tells you like, hey, what's the reading on the thermometer? <laughs> and it might hurt a little bit to know what they read back to you. Um, I, I would suggest that if these aren't conversations that you and your spouse are able to have with one another, that you know, there might be some issues you need to work out. Marriages are at a lot of different places, but as, as Christ-seeking people, um, our marriages can be a gift, I think, um, to help us really say, where, where is our heart really at? And not just what we put on a face in church or on social media. Um, so consider the tool that our spouse can be to actually show you uh, a mirror of what you look like and just reflect on past conversations with them as well. I have some tools for you, just like the last time I got to speak, um, and I gave you the list of things that you might lose, and how that would change your view of God, your change your view of yourself. You know, we, we talked about hair and jobs and all that. Well, I have another list for you today. Um, how about what annoys you? Anybody been annoyed this week? <laughs> Megan has everybody. Megan's been annoyed. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty, Megan. That was a test. Everyone should raise their hand. You were the only one who passed. I've been annoyed this week. Um, I didn't rank this one, so I can't guarantee of the crescendo of things that might annoy us. Anybody been annoyed by prices this week? 
or this month or this year? Anybody been annoyed by referees? Anybody been annoyed by dri drivers on the road this week? <laughs> Today? Thank you, Erica, for your honesty. Anybody been annoyed by the president? <laughs> anybody anybody been annoyed by uh, media? Anybody been annoyed by children? <laughs> How about your own parents? Or or your in-laws? <laughs> been annoyed by your in-laws? Not me, John Brenda. She said it. <laughs> yeah, Katie. Either. Anybody been annoyed by younger generations? Hmm? Anybody been annoyed by older generations? Um, I think that's about it. Any, anything else to add to that list? The market. The market? <laughs> Stock market? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Chuck Schumer. Nancy Pelosi. The telephone telemarketers been annoyed? So I think it's a really good exercise. I've, I've said this before to come back to, hmm, let me check my temperature by asking myself, what's annoying me right now? Why does it annoy me? And I, I'll put it back to you. Like, why? what does make it so easy to get annoyed? And it might be answers to the same question. Why is it so easy for us to slip into judgment of others? Mm -hmm. We want ourselves to look better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, we've formed our thoughts and opinions, not just overnight. Like, we've put some thought into them. Is our work wasted when we say, you have a different opinion? That's, that's crazy. Anything else? right yeah really good tool really good question because yeah it's like a seed in there there was something i wanted whether to have a piece from a telemarketer or to take my lane and not get cut off or whatever it was or for my children to just just for a moment peace and quiet billy whatever it was wanted why didn't i get it why did i expect to get it I hope y'all have some examples in your life of you find people like, you know what? They are not annoyed by much. Someone who carries what scripturally would be the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians that Paul lists out. Oh man, they are described not by envy, selfish ambition, dissension, division, or um, wild living, outbursts of anger, but instead, those people love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you know anybody who's like, yeah, that really describes them? You don't, it's, a, it's rhetorical, but I ask you to consider, honestly, like, do you know anybody? Like, yeah, they are much more described by that second list than that first. 
And then my next question would be, do they follow Christ? Like, can you tell? I can't imagine someone having those qualities that they do not come from Christ. I can imagine maybe I'm doing short spurts, but consistently, 24-7, I don't imagine how that comes from anywhere but Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. Um, I know that's the case for me. Like, I had no ability to do those things on my own except for putting off maximum effort of which could last for a little burst and then be back into hypocritical living. Um, but I, I do know that Christ gives me an endurance in those things that I cannot manufacture on my own. Um, why is it so tempting to judge others? Uh, sometimes the world of like counseling and everything catches up to Christ. And right now, uh, the world of psychology and counseling says, you know, it's really typical to judge others because it is a coping mechanism of pain uh, as opposed to our own insecurities that are deep within us, of which we all have, like sin creates insecurity. It's instead what's happening. Well, we, uh, we end up looking at others because it keeps that mirror from shining back into our own hearts. So it's actually called projecting. And so we find, it's really interesting, that some of the things we judge others the harshest for are the things we are the most guilty of. And I started to reflect, like, yeah, that is true. Um, told Andy and Katie this last night that Alistair Begg gave the example of a diet. And he gave his own example of, like, he was, like, talking in the third person, but it came true. Uh, it was clear it was about him, because he's like, and so then you ate this from the pantry. And then you found some cooked chocolate cookies that someone sent you from London, and you ate that, and you ate this. And then your wife walks in, and she grabs a handful of M&Ms, like, it's quite a few M&Ms, don't you think? <laughs> and you're like, okay, hypocrite, right? And I know um, Sarah and I have often been like, hey, we need to kind of hold each other in check on eating. And that, oh, she's got something to do. Wow, oh, I can have that bowl of cereal in the afternoon and she won't know a thing, right? Probably should make sure I clean the bowl because if she sits in the dishwasher, then she might know. And like, hey, guilty. Guilty. Um, and that's one laughable example, right? And it's something we can laugh because we know and it's food. We've all been there a little lighter. But then you just think, guilty on that, probably guilty in ways that it wouldn't be so funny or at all, in fact, would be pretty sick. And so that's where we sit. Why are we so weak? I think a big thing, part of it is we're afraid. We are very much afraid of who we are on our own. And we're afraid of what we are capable of, what we, um, what we long for and don't have because we're searching for it outside of Christ. Um, that we're afraid to actually deal with the realities of our sin. But God has said consistently in Scripture, do not fear. In Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. In 2 Timothy um, 1, Timothy says, for God, or Paul's letter to Timothy, for God gave us a spirit of fear, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In 1 John, it says, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. And so you find that, why wouldn't I take my temperature? Why wouldn't I want to know what I'm sick? Because you're afraid. And it's understandable to be afraid, but you don't have to be. And on the other side of being humbled, 
by the realities of our sin, our inability to actually deal with our own judgment of others because we are so sick ourselves. On the other side of that is the graciousness of Christ. And I can say that very confidently because I've experienced it. And I felt the pressure relieved from me and just so much, so much joy and peace and confidence through Christ. Um, You don't have to be afraid, Tim Keller. I said he's tweeting a lot lately. This is actually from a few years ago. The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. You're actually worse than I've even had you consider this morning. I'm worse. But you're more accepted in love than you ever dared to hope. Good stuff. Humiliation. We talked about this. We all want humility, right? We would want to be humbled. But the actual act of being humbled is a much stronger word, I think, that terrifies the most of us. Humiliation. In humiliation. Um, How about an example of humiliation, right, that we can rely upon in Philippians chapter 2? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor, gave him a name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, he is our ultimate example of humiliation. It'd be really humiliating um, to speak to your spouse later and honestly get an assessment of, what do you see me putting a a, uh, a judgment, a measure of judgment to others that I can't live up to myself, it would be hard to hear. It's kind of exciting to think, oh, that would be powerful, but like, no, it would be really painful. It'd be humiliating. Um, if I, I've said it a lot, like, if you could see what conversations you had privately in your home, how you treated your kids, if you could see a transcript of your thoughts, it would be so depraved and awful that I wouldn't. I'd have a hard time reading it of any of you. And I know I wouldn't want you to be reading mine. One tool um, that I've said before to get to humility is to be on. Don't be afraid to be honest about your sin. Because on the other side of that fear is the graciousness of Christ. Now, the practical things we can do to actually have this humiliation have people checking you on it, like right? That's why we do sports practice. It's like, all right, I tried this. How did it go? Let's examine. This week, what annoys you, right? Maybe ask your spouse or have a friend ask you, like, what annoyed you today? Why did it annoy you? You can check yourself on it. Well, and maybe it gets to the heart of like what Christy mentioned. Like, I really wanted this. Why do you want that? Did you deserve that? What did you expect? I really enjoyed that question. What did you expect? And I think it can be really enlightening. Enlightening. I use that question a lot this week. And sometimes you can overdo a question and it can be more about you than others, but there was a tennis tournament and a young lady was running it and she really was not coached well to run the tournament. And so I had to go to Margaret Pryor's funeral. Um, I took the guys, left, came back, 
Um, by the time I came back, all the other MEC coaches were like, yeah, things have gone fine, but man, she did this, she did this. And my question every single time, what did you expect? And almost every time it was like, it was like the burrow, the fur, burrow, burrow in your brow, the burrow in your brow. <laughs> it went like, oh, they put that, that match on court 12, like, and she had her players giving courts out. I'm like, what did you expect? Oh, you know, I didn't. <laughs> I was like, yeah, just how quickly you went from this to, you know, I didn't expect much. She's a 22-year-old girl who's never coached tennis in her life. Oh, you know, and like, I was judging, like, I'm, I'm like Alistair, like, well, that makes me judging them. Um, but just like these examples, are like, yeah, just relax. You don't be afraid, like, to examine yourself. Here's another one that I love. Um, the story I'm telling myself is, so um, I, I know many of us are disappointed with sometimes how family interactions go. Like you have a sibling that like, oh, they weren't able to make it to this family dinner or a daughter or son. Like they didn't come, they didn't show up, they didn't call. Um, and we had that happen with our sister um, a couple of years ago that I really wanted her at something. I called her, um, Jessica, and, and they decided not to come up. And I was mad, and we talked amongst each other, and like, oh, we're so annoyed at her. And um, it's like, well, I, did, I hate this feeling. So what I did, I forget who told us this, um, to use this instead of like, Jessica, you've disappointed me again. Instead, I called her, and I said, Jessica, listen, love you, love spending time with you, the story I'm telling myself is you just don't like spending time with us. And, you know, so we shared a tearful moment and she was like, you know, it is really hard for us because we just, we love being at home and we get so uncomfortable so easy, you know, when we have to leave home. This is why it's hard. And, and she ends up apologizing like, I'm sorry. I know we sometimes choose poorly. And it just was a really great conversation. And usually it just lasted in that part, like, we're so annoyed at her, why don't they come up? But instead it turned into, like, we do love each other. We share a unity, a bond as siblings. And, yeah, the world comes in and tries to wreck that, but ultimately a humility, instead of saying, you do this. Hey, the story I'm telling myself is this. Tell me why it's not true. And you can see how that change in language can really change the approach and just I would encourage you to build those types of bridges instead of just sitting in your own annoyance and festering and stewing as we talked about in judgment of others and not giving forgiveness it's like taking a poison pill and expecting the other person to die it's like if you have and aren't willing to give this kind of graciousness to others you better dig two graves as you try to make things right one for them and one for you so there's lots of tools, right? I would love for you to try out this week and we can gather next Sunday morning and talk like how to go. What has been annoying you? And, and how can we get to see Christ bring redemption to these places where we're not having to sit in the judgment seat? It's beyond our pay grade, as Billy Graham said. I don't have to worry about being a judge. It's so good. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for your great mercy. We deserve to be judged the moment before, we, before we're even conceived. It's like we already have sin just in our hearts. So please, Lord, help us to 
feel the full weight of the graciousness and mercy you've given us. So we would not be as that parable of the wicked servant who's unwilling to forgive others. That we would abound so much in the grace of Christ. We so see the weight of our own sin that we, every day is Easter morning to us. We, we've been set free from burdens we can't pay and debts we can't pay every single day. And therefore, we do not come in judgment to the world, but we come in graciousness and love and truth. Truth that not says, you need to do this for me, but truth that just says, this is what love looks like, and it's found in Christ. Let this illuminate for us all, Father. And let this week um, be a moment where you can really show us clearly how we can step out of, of this self-loathing judgment of others and into the glorious, gracious mercy of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.